very good morning to you, Northgate Baptist. Might I add, Merry Christmas as well. Um, we're officially into the Advent season. I think we can do that now. And you know, from these are the four weeks uh, sort of before Christmas that sort of build that anticipation for our celebration of the coming of our Savior. And now, from now until December 25th, we could be all Christmas all the time. That's just how I think we should roll. Um, because this really is one of the most wonderful times of the year. And if you want to join me, turn with me to the book uh, of Gospel of Matthew, uh, first book in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2 this morning, uh, because really to guide our hearts and our minds in the weeks ahead, uh, we're going to be looking at a series I'm calling The Three Kings of Christmas. And usually, you know, at Christmas, you think of the three kings, you probably think of the wise men. Uh, you know, even might know the song, We Three Kings from Orient are, bearing gifts we've traveled so far. Uh, but they're not the only kings found in the Christmas story. In fact, they're not really technically kings. Um, because we have the true king of Christmas, who's our savior who's born, Jesus. But we also have another king uh, in the Christmas story. And that's going to be the man that we meet in our passage this morning. Uh, this king of Christmas is named Herod. And Herod is actually a big part uh, of the Christmas story. Uh, and he's a part of the Christmas story for all the wrong reasons, uh, which we'll see. Uh, but let's look at the part uh, that Herod played as we read together Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. It says this, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, 
when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that, Lord, you would just be present with us. Uh, Lord, in, in our time this morning, that, Lord, as we acknowledge that, Lord, you, you, the Savior has come, Christmas has happened, Lord, we also acknowledge that that means you are here with us uh, in this moment. And Lord, as we open your word, as we take time to study the story of Christmas, I pray that, Lord, Christ would be high and lifted up among us, that, Lord, we would, that we would gaze upon him and marvel and wonder and worship uh, for this plan of salvation that you put into place. And Lord, I just ask that, yeah, you would be with us, guide our hearts, guide our thoughts, uh, direct us to the truth you would have us here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said this morning, we're going to look at some of the kings of Christmas. And as we do that, we're confronted by a man known as Herod. Uh, Herod the Great is sort of the, the handle uh, that the historians have given him. And you could probably think of Herod, well, he could really be thought of as sort of maybe the first Grinch of Christmas, the guy that wanted to keep Christmas from coming. Uh, he might even be like Scrooge and Grinch all rolled up into one guy. Um, he was a bad dude. And Herod was the first king in the line of several Herodian kings, which bear his name, uh, who followed him. These Herodian kings, his legacy, uh, would rule parts of Judah and Galilee for the next half century or more. And you read about them in the Bible. Any, out of curiosity, how many Herodian kings do you think are mentioned in the Bible? How many King Herods are there? Any guesses? Three? Yeah, a little higher. I think I heard five. Five. There's five Herods uh, in the Bible, which makes it really confusing because they're just called Herod. Uh, but So you have Herod the Great, uh, who's in this passage. Uh, if you still have your Bible open to Matthew, in verse 22, after King Herod the Great dies, we read about his successor, Herod Archelaus. Ar Ar uh, then you have another one of his sons, uh, King Herod Antipas. Uh, he's the guy that beheaded John the Baptist, remember, because he married his sister's, there's a, yeah, sister's wife, no, brother, yeah, anyways, bad stuff. Uh, you have his grandson, King Herod Agrippa I, uh, he's in the book of Acts, he's the one that beheads James and puts Peter in prison and uh, eventually dies getting eaten by worms. Uh, and finally, there's Herod Agrippa II, uh, he's the guy in Acts 22, he's sitting with Festus and uh, the Apostle Paul pleads his case before them on his way to Rome. And again, that's a lot of Herods. But here's the thing. The one thing that it seems all of these Herods seem to have in common is every one of these King Herods seem to end up on the wrong side of whatever it is God is trying to do. Um, and that dubious legacy of being on the wrong side of God's history begins with Herod the Great. Or should we say King Herod the Great? Because 
Something you need to understand as you read this passage in context is that if you were alive and living a sort of a semi-happy life in Jerusalem, right about the time that Jesus was born, if someone came up to you on the street and asked you the question, who was it that has come to be king of the Jews? Everybody knew the answer. Because the king of the Jews was Herod the Great. There was no debate about that. In fact, Herod even had the paperwork to prove it. The Roman Senate had given Herod that title some 30 years before Jesus was ever born. And it was a title that didn't come cheap. I mean, Herod, he had to pay off the right people and pat all the right backs and grease all the right palms and pull all the right strings in order to become king. He actually rose to power on the coattails of the Roman emperor, Julius Caesar. But when Julius Caesar was assassinated, you know, A2 Brutus, there was a civil war for power, and Herod threw his support behind the general Mark Anthony. But when Mark Anthony lost that war to Caesar Augustus, Herod somehow managed to convince Augustus that he had really been on his side the entire time, like I was a double agent kind of thing. No, I was really backing you. Which is exactly what is to be expected from a guy like Herod, because Herod, he really knew how the world worked. He knew how to use his power and influence to the greatest advantage. He knew how to get ahead in the world and stay there. And basically, Herod, he knew how to manipulate and betray and lie and cheat and steal to get what he wanted. And he seemingly had no guilt about doing any of those things to get power. I actually heard it, Herod described like this. I think this is a very accurate description of the man. Herod was ethnically an Arab, Religiously, he was a convert to Judaism. Culturally, he was a Greek. Politically, he was a Roman. But the only thing in the world that Herod really cared about was himself. And you know, nothing, because of that, nothing was under, un, too beneath him or too underhanded if it meant attaining more power. Herod even got married for political gain. And not just white. Historians record Herod getting married at least 10 times probably even more than that. He had at least 43 different children. But again, not because he was a loving husband and father, just politics. It was just good for him and his position. In fact, the Jewish historian, um, Josephus, records in his writings there was only one woman that Herod ever really, truly loved. And her name was Miriam. And any guesses what happened to her? Herod killed her <laughs> because he thought she might betray him. So he decided, I'm just going to publicly charge her with adultery. He even somehow managed his mother-in-law at the time to testify in court against her own daughter to bring a conviction. Of course, as soon as the trial was over and the it's better to be safe than sorry way of thinking, Herod also had his mother-in-law killed. Uh, Herod was actually personally responsible for the death of two of his brothers, at least one of his brothers-in-law, and even his own father. In short, like Herod was a guy who never saw a problem that separating someone's head from their shoulders couldn't solve. Even his own children weren't safe. At one time, Herod felt two of his favorite sons were getting a little too ambitious, so he had them smothered to death. And then he killed their barber. For, for, I don't know why, but he just, threw, like, is this a two, three for, why one, two, get one free? I don't know. He was crazy, even on his deathbed. So Herod is five days away from death, and he had yet another one of his sons killed to protect his throne. 
It was there on his deathbed that there comes a story that as Herod lay dying there, uh, he knew that no one in Jerusalem would mourn his passing. No one would be sad that he was gone. They probably would throw a party. So Herod made plans to have 70 of the most influential and loved people in Jerusalem arrested in order that they could be killed upon the hour of his death just so Herod could know that there would be genuine weeping in the streets on the day that he died. And that's just a small sampling of the man who called himself Herod the Great, the King of the Jews. I mean, he was a cruel, sadistic, paranoid megalomaniac. And there was no price too high, no obstacle too big, no life too precious that Herod would not sacrifice it in a heartbeat for more power. And I've spent time telling you all that because I think it lets us see our passage a little bit more clearly. Because reading in Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now ask yourself, now that you know just a little bit about King Herod, how do you think he might respond to the news that there's been another king born? That there's now a rival to his throne? It's probably not going to be good. And it's probably a little bit of an understatement as we read in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And now we also understand why the verse continues, on all and all Jerusalem with him. Because with this new threat to his power, Herod, he's stirred up, he's anxious, he's troubled. And in Jerusalem, when Herod wasn't happy, nobody was safe. When Herod was upset, people tended to just disappear. So I think for the people in Jerusalem, this was about to become a life of sort of looking over your shoulder, jumping at shadows, living in fear. Because Herod would not rest until he knew his throne was secure. But first he needed some answers. So we read in verse 4. Assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And I'll actually admit, I, I think it's just creepy that Herod uses the Bible's promise of a savior to make a hit list of his enemies. Like, he's gathering information from God's gracious word to find people he wants to kill. But now that he knows where, Bethlehem, you know, as Dr. Seuss might put it, he thought up a plan and he thought it up quick. And I always picture it sort of with a smile on his face and betrayal in his heart. We read in verse 7, Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And I'm not sure he means worship in the same way we, we mean worship there. He had other things. Maybe I watched too many movies. But in that moment, I could kind of imagine Herod twirling his evil mustache, you know, telling the Magi, a new king, you say, how wonderful, you know. Let me know when you find him. I would love to meet him and give him exactly what he deserves, kind of thing. Like, it's just, like, he's crazy. 
And there's every indication here that Herod would have gotten away with his plan if it were not for some divine intervention. As we see beginning in verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now let's stop again there for a moment. Because again, knowing King Herod like we do now, ask yourselves, how do you think a man like Herod would respond to that kind of betrayal? Well, if you said by killing somebody or by killing a whole lot of somebodies, you would be exactly right. Because if you skip down to verse 16, you read, When then Herod, when he had saw he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And you know, right there is probably what we might call the often untold part of the Christmas story. Where we hear about this event that really is so terrible, so horrible, that even 2,000 years later we can still sort of feel the echoes of what that loss must have been like. And it's often untold because at Christmas, we tend to focus on the things that make us comfortable. Joy, celebration, hope, peace. But you don't see a lot of Christmas cards where the streets of Bethlehem are running red with blood. You don't hear a lot about the fact that the first Christmas song, one of the first ever sung, was a song of lament and sadness. You don't often hear that children, perhaps hundreds of infant boys and toddlers, were slaughtered and killed for no other reason than a mad king's paranoia. And you know, the truth is we're often guilty of romanticizing Christmas, trying to clean it up, you know, sweep the dung away from the manger, and we forget the things like the stigma Mary had to carry, you know, as, as a woman who got pregnant you know, out of wedlock. Or, you know, we, we forget that Joseph and Mary were forced to flee from their home and live in a foreign land because this power-mad king would stop at nothing to see them dead. We tend to forget that in the little town of Bethlehem, Christmas meant death and tears to those who were left behind. We prefer the happier moments, you know, like the shepherds and the angels and the stars. We like to pretend it's all good, but it's often not. And you know, even today, I think we see this playing out because you know what, Christmas, Christmas in real life is always messier than the Hallmark cards make it out to be. And the reality of Christmas is that it can be very tough for people. It can be chaotic. It can be lonely. You know, Christmas can be a time for many people that hurts. Because Christmas, this Christmas season doesn't mean our struggles 
or our problems magically stop or go on hiatus while we celebrate. In fact, in many cases, the Christmas season only magnifies a person's pain. For many people, Christmas is the saddest and most depressing time of the year because it only serves to remind so many people just how alone and hopeless their lives really feel. There's actually even a, a survey done by the Canadian Mental Health Association in 2021. And it asked people, and it reported that 52% of people who responded said that holidays, holidays actually negatively impact their mental health. 52, that means one out of every two people say Christmas actually hurts more than my regular time, life. And you know, we know suicide rates are the highest during the holidays. Rates of domestic abuse and violence increase by 20%. Drug and alcohol use spikes at this time of year. And you know, every year there's a group of people who will be enduring a Christmas that's marked by the death of a loved one. You know, where there's an empty chair around the table this year, an empty stocking by the fire, a missing gift under the tree. Christmas can be tough. And in those moments, we may even ask ourselves the same kinds of questions the people in Bethlehem are probably asking so long ago, which is, where is God in all this? I mean, where is the good news of Christmas to people who just feel overwhelmed with sorrow? Where's the good news of Christmas to people who are enduring pain? Where's the good news of Christmas to people who are going through hard times? Where's the good news of Christmas to people for whom Christmas only reminds them of loss? Those are tough questions. And the answer to each and every one of those questions is found in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, God's answer to our pain and our sorrow and our fear and our loss is the message of Christmas itself. Because Christmas is not just about any baby who was born in a manger. No, when Mary gives birth to her son, it's not just any son. He's the son of God. He's the child of promise. He's the Messiah, the Christ. He's God in the flesh who came to be our Savior. Because Christmas is about God breaking into the world of man as a baby. It's about the love of God that would not sit idle while mankind died in sin. Christmas is about God making good on his word to send us a savior and then being willing to pay any price to show himself faithful. Because you know, when Christmas, you get right down to it, Christmas is about the cross. Because the birth of Jesus and his death on the cross are things that are inseparable. One loses its meaning without the other. Both the incarnation and the crucifixion took place for the same purpose. Because Jesus came to save people from their sin. He came to shed his blood on the cross and pay the price that we couldn't to offer us life and hope and peace. And that's a light that shines even in the darkness. And that leads me actually to three quick lessons that I want to give you that I think our passage is really trying to teach us this morning about Christmas. And the first lesson is that Christmas means that God reaches down to us wherever we are. I was actually sort of joking with the staff this week that I felt like I, felt like I preached myself into a corner, uh, you know, because I felt like, you know, I did a really good job describing how horrible a person Herod was. And I did a really good job, I thought, of, of explaining just the overwhelming sorrow that must have followed in Bethlehem. 
But then I kind of felt like stuck because I'm in this really, really dark place with so much pain. How do you just then easily transition back into the hope of Christmas? How do you sort of dig myself out of this pit of sorrow I just preached myself in to get us back to, you know, the Savior? And it was then I realized I don't have to. Because I realized the whole point of the Christmas story is not that we have to drag ourselves out of the darkness and out of the pit and out of the muck of our lives to find Jesus. It's that Jesus finds us. That he enters into that. That he comes to us. That Jesus finds us where we are, even if it is stuck in that pit. Jesus enters into this messy world with us. He enters into the sorrow. He enters into the pain. He enters into this broken and sinful world to be with us and to be our Savior. You know, the message of Christmas is not that bad things will stop happening to you and you can be happy all the time. The message of Christmas is really that even when bad things are happening, we have a Savior who has now come to be with us. And that leads us to the second lesson I think we learned today. And that's that Christmas needs to be personal. I've told you this before, but I always remember being, you know, Christmas as a kid, being so excited for the presents. <laughs> it's just like it's the kid thing, but, you know, just waiting to dig into those gifts under the tree. I mean, gifts that had your name on them, just waiting for you. There's an excitement about that. There's expectation because a gift was meant to be opened. In fact, an unopened gift is useless and unappreciated. And you know, at Christmas time, the gift of God in Jesus Christ is also useless unless it's received. You know, even in our passage, I find Herod, you know, Herod heard the truth that a Savior had come. But it didn't change his life at all. Because he didn't want to make that truth his own. And you know, tragically this Christmas, you know, millions of people will celebrate Christmas but they'll celebrate it without knowing, you know, really knowing this Savior that they've never known. You know, millions of people will sing songs about a baby born in a manger whose gift of salvation they've never received. And that's nothing short of tragic. Because Christmas without Christ really is pointless. You have to make the Savior your own. And if you don't, you know, sin and sorrow and loss will always have the power to overwhelm you. Accept the gift of God, that God sent you at Christmas. Accept his son as your savior. Because that makes all the difference. And that leads us to our final lesson this morning from our passage. And that is that Christmas means that even our suffering can be part of God's plan for our lives. You know, here in our passage, you have Bethlehem going through this very great tragedy. You have this mad king who's hungry for power. You have Mary and Joseph whose lives are going to be turned upside down as they flee for their lives. And reading that, you'd almost be tempted to think it's all going wrong. Like this plan of God must be falling apart right before our eyes. But you know, as you read this passage, we are assured, even here, that God is still in control. That everything that is happening is just as God had foretold it. And that God is using each of these moments and each of these events 
for his plans and his, for his purposes to, to deliver to us a Savior just as he promised. In fact, I counted no less than three times that this passage tells us this was done to fulfill prophecy. You see, when you read this, there is suffering here. But there's also sovereignty. Suffering and sovereignty on the same page together. And I think that so many people, when they look at their lives and they feel that things are, things are just going wrong in their lives, they think, oh, that's, it's game over. You know, so much is going wrong, it's a dead end. There's no recovering from what I'm going through right now. And yet the lesson is that God takes broken plans, he takes broken hearts, he takes broken lives, and he redeems them and often makes something beautiful. And not just in the Christmas story. I mean, through Jesus, God gives us hope that is bigger than our fears. He gives us strength bigger than our challenges, joy that's fuller than our sorrows, a future that is more certain than our present, and a life that is even bigger than death. And you know, maybe you're going through a hard time right now, and you're, just, you're not even sure how you're going to get through it. Maybe you're discouraged or disappointed with the kind of problems that are piling up all around you. Maybe you're fearful. Maybe you're hurting. Maybe you've suffered loss. The good news of Christmas is that Christ is willing to enter into all of that and be with you. He enters into the loneliness, into our fears, into our failures, into our sorrows. He enters into our lives to be our Savior. And he redeems our brokenness to offer us something beautiful as he offers us hope. And that's what communion reminds us of anew as we come to the communion table again this morning. This table has hope. As we come to the table, we remember those things. We remember the forgiveness and the love and the mercy and the extravagant grace and the hope of our Savior as we remember his broken body and spilt blood on the cross. Because we remember that Jesus was God's Christmas gift given to each and every one of us. And even in our sorrow of our, even in the sorrow of our present world, you can't stop the Savior from offering hope to those who receive it. Let's pray. Father God, we do this morning just are, we are so thankful for Christmas and all that it means. This news that not just that the King has come, but the Savior has come to be with us, to offer us salvation. And yet, Lord, we know from our pastor, not everybody welcomes that news. Just like Herod, there are some people who hear that and they refuse to surrender their lives. For some people, the news of a Savior is a threat to their own autonomy, to the way that they want to live their lives, and they want to reject it and keep Christmas from coming. And for other people, Lord, the news of Christmas is tough because... They just feel like they're in such a dark place, a hard place, a suffering place. They're, you know, there's so much going on that they don't even know how Christmas could make a difference in their lives. But Lord, the good news of Christmas is that, Lord, when you came, you didn't come to live in a castle ruling far off up in a throne somewhere. Lord, you came to be with us. You're born in a manger. You walked the streets Lord, you came to, to experience lives and do life with us and enter into our lives, no matter how messy those lives might be.
And Lord, we realize it's because Jesus came to be our Savior. That Lord, through his birth, through his sinless life, and through his death on the cross, Lord, that though all those things are part of the plan of salvation. And Lord, we just celebrate that truth this morning. And Lord, as we come to this table, um, just once again, I pray that, Lord, you would help, not just help us celebrate that truth, but Lord, I pray that you would help our hearts receive our King. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to...